tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And uh, as we chat for this latest episode, we have an upcoming Billie Jean King Cup tie in Vancouver, British Columbia for the weekend. We have the clay court season in full effect with the first Masters 1000 in Monte Carlo. And Mike, this week, I also had a chance to speak with a popular tennis broadcaster, Mike Cation, who's very famous for the work he's done on the ATP Challenger circuit. Yeah, really dug your interview with Mike that we'll get to in a few moments. And he just seems like such a grounded, down-to-earth kind of guy who's Got a lot of experience and a lot of stories. Um, I like the fact that he said some of the best conversations he's ever had with pros have been around like the hotel bar where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, late at night at a challenger tournament, maybe you'll hear all sorts of things. So, yeah, I really like his, uh, you know, on the ground sort of uh, scope of uh, tennis, the professional tennis. And he had a lot of great things to say about uh, the challenger tennis tour, things that we maybe take for granted or don't explore as often as we probably should, considering, look, the bulk of professional tennis players play events like that more regularly than than the big ones that we always uh, think of and, and focus on more more often unfortunately exactly it's uh, an aspect of our sport that's that's overlooked and, and something we we delve into and get into certain stories about players um one in particular canadian peter polanski who has spent uh, the bulk of his career uh playing the challenger circuit why don't we get into that interview right now with mike and then As we come out of it, we'll talk a bit about that and uh, the upcoming clay season as well. Here's my interview with Mike Cation. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis and happy to be joined by our guest this week, one of the esteemed tennis broadcasters in our sport today. He's also the co-host of the Behind the Racket podcast with Noah Rubin. Very pleased to welcome Mike Cation to the show. Mike, uh, thanks so much for taking the time this week uh, to speak with me. No, I'm glad, glad to do it, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'd, I'd love to just start about your background in the sport. I'm always curious of different journalists, broadcasters, if they have like that tennis background. Did, did you play growing up? Was it something you were always interested in? And, and how did you find yourself uh, becoming a tennis broadcaster? Yeah, um, I, I've, I've told this story before. I was actually taught as a junior by Craig Tiley. Oh, okay. who is now the CEO of Tennis Australia, runs the Australian Open. He was the head coach at the University of Illinois while I was um, growing up, kind of going through the, the junior phases. Um, I did play high school tennis and had a, a decent junior career, um, was going to play college tennis, but I blew out my shoulder for a second time and just kind of decided that's, that's enough. I've had enough. Um, and I was, I was really lucky. I went into broadcasting in college. Um, and then when I got my first job out of college, Craig was still the head coach at the university of Illinois. Um, he asked me if I wanted to be the public address announcer for his uh, men's tennis team at the university and, um, just started working with that program while still broadcasting and radio, um, in Illinois. And, and about, I guess it was 12 years later, one of the people I met during that journey when I was doing some PR for the men's tennis team asked me if I'd be interested in doing some play-by-play at the challenger level. Um, in, in about two weeks later, I was in Winnetka, Illinois, broadcasting my first ever tennis match, and that was July 2013. So nine years later, here we are. Fantastic. Um, love love that story. And that's a good transition, I think, to make because uh, I'd love to you know, speak about your role, I, I think, in giving key exposure to the ATP Challenger circuit. Um, we don't get maybe the opportunity to chat about it enough, but as you, I think so many tennis fans follow the sport more and more, they realize like there are a lot of terrific players competing in challengers and, and floating up to these big time tournaments. Um, yeah, just, just your role calling some of those matches. Were you anticipating the level to be a, as good as it is? And um, yeah, I guess how how important is that exposure, I think, in growing our sport, do you feel? Yeah, it's a great question, Ben. I've, I've seen a lot of Peter Polanski um, oh. in my nine years of broadcasting um, since 2013. Um, my first exposure to challenger tennis was back in 2001. Um, I was the public relations person for the Champaign, Illinois Challenger 
And that week, it was my first time getting to see that level. And the final ended up being Robbie Ginepri versus Ivo Karlovich. There you go. Which, in hindsight, is a pretty darn good, um, pretty darn good career for both of those guys. Mm-hmm. So I, I think for me, what I've learned over the last nine years, especially, is that there's very little difference in in talent from the guys at the challenger level up into the uh, let's let's just say fifty as a ranking. Sure. Um, just kind of use that as a base setting. I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of difference. A lot of it is determined by getting the right break at the right tournament and having that good that good moment. Francisco Cerindolo uh, in Miami last week had an incredible week, and now he's gone from 110 to 50 in the world uh, just because he happened to be the right place at the right time playing incredibly well. Um, it's, it's very important to have this exposure because of the fact that the marketing opportunities for players the sponsorship opportunities for players in the 100 to 200 ranking level is very small. Um, So the more we're able to give them the opportunity to showcase what they're able to do, showcase themselves to agents, showcase themselves to other marketing opportunities, whether it be cash tournaments, these these type of things, it's really important. Um, But but ultimately, I I think it's just to make sure that fans are well aware of the fact that the the level is not different at all. Cam Norrie just hit the top 10. Um, mm-hmm. He was playing challengers for two, three years before he got to that point where he was starting to make some ATP finals. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have a good relationship with Nick Kyrgios because he played in challengers for a bit of time before he hit that big run at Wimbledon back in 2014. Yep. Um, so I got to know him there. These are very talented players, um, the kind of guys and, and, and gals who make up the first three rounds of every Grand Slam. So I, I think it's important more, more so to tell those stories um, because I think they're, they're just not known. Uh, but I think the stories that they have to tell are just much more important in many ways than maybe what we might know about Rafa or Roger or Serena or Venus, those type of players. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's very well said, and um, it's it's often we we don't hear about that big time challenger success until they do something at the big time pro circuit level. I mean, I don't know if you had any exposure to Aslan Karatsev and and what he was doing before that Australian open run that we saw last year making the semifinals. But um, for those who kind of checked in, it it seemed like he was dominating the challenger circuit and a guy who clearly you watch him play and you're like, well, he looks as good as any other top 30 guy. Right. For, for me, um, since most of my work, the challenger work that I do is in the U.S., the example, Ben, is Jensen Brooksby. Perfect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, last last year going from what was he uh, started the year around 400 that last year. Yeah, that was last year. I'm sorry. The last yeah, yeah. few years are all kind of running together. Mm-hmm. But starting the year 400 and then, you know, obviously making that run at the U.S. Open, I saw him win three challenger titles. And it was very clear at that point that he was going to be able to have that kind of success because you, 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 tennis is tennis, right? So you can see when somebody is playing and they're at a very special level. Um, Jensen's story was just a little bit more intriguing because of the fact that I think every player he played during that challenger stretch was convinced that they were going to beat him. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody was just like, oh, I, I, that serve is so weak i'm sure i can take advantage of it and then then you know they lose two and three yeah um but yeah it's it's one of those things where you can you can tell when somebody's there when somebody's very close about to make a breakthrough um oslan i watched a little bit more on stream since he was playing more over in europe and asia uh, but you you could tell there was something that was possibly going to happen um as he just kind of started making that progress in what was that 20 2020 at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you a quick uh, Peter Polanski question, actually, since since you mentioned him and and this is this might be a running memory for for a lot of people. And, and maybe it's it's not a good Polanski moment for him, who I, I think he's a guy who's had a good career, to be honest. But I, I believe you were calling a match. I don't know how many years ago. And Polanski's opponent uh, whether he had a shoulder injury, he could only serve underhand and Mackenzie McDonald. Mackenzie McDonald. Okay. So great player. Uh, great, great yeah. player. Um, so 
Yeah, Mackie McDonald was serving underhand. I, I don't know if this was first or tail end of the second set, and <laughs> McDonald won the set while serving yeah. underhand. Maybe you can, uh, I, I guess, reveal more of that story. Yeah, it's it. It's funny because Ben, I, I think as most of your Canadian listeners will know, Peter Polanski, I've I've said on my podcast multiple times, I think is probably the best player never to be inside the top 100. Mm. Got very close multiple times. Yeah. But that match really summed up Peter Polanski for me um, because you're, you're right. It was Mackenzie was at the end of a long stretch um, where he was just making his first uh, kind of push into the pros at the higher levels after um, a good college career at UCLA. And yeah, so he just kind of hit this wall and, and I, 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 if memory serves, he just, he just basically was just going to see what happened. And if he went down a break, he was just going to call it off and just end his season. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee. So that's in November. And so he was ready to be done with the year, Uh, but he just started throwing in these little slice serves, um, you know, underhanded and Peter just couldn't adjust. Um, and, and was, you know, deciding whether he wanted to move forward, if he wanted to hit and retreat and just kind of having this complete indecision. Um, and it kind of summed up Peter for me because he, he'd never really made, uh, adjustments in his career. He was always so good at just being about, I guess you would say about a meter behind the baseline, just that ability to move side to side and roping balls down the line. But that was, that was it and didn't have that ability to have a a B game, a C game. Um, And that was just a perfect example of it because yeah, it was one of those things that he was getting a lot of short sitters and he just couldn't figure out exactly what to do, how to attack and move forward, finish off volleys. And he, he managed to get through because as soon as he got a break in the third set, it was over. It was fine. You know, he was comfortably holding serve, but yeah, Mackie just fine from the baseline couldn't come above his shoulder at all. But yeah, Polanski eventually gets through that. But yeah, it kind of sums Peter up pretty well. Yeah, well, I can imagine um, the thoughts that start circling around in your head. If you are the Polanski and you're like, this guy's serving underhand, like how right. how am I how am I losing this set? What's what's happening? So right. And uh, yeah, you had some very poignant commentary, which I think revealed that it was just like this is sort of stunning um, that this is occurring. Uh, but yeah. he did recover and win the match, so uh, so good for Peter pulling that off. Um, just to to talk, I guess, further about the the process of being a broadcaster and play-by-play is such a challenge and it's so different across different sports. Um, you look at hockey, which is very popular here in Canada. It's very, very fast paced. Something like baseball is much, much slower. How long do you think it sort of took you to feel comfortable with, with the pacing of tennis and, and I guess be comfortable in your own voice as a broadcaster? That's a great question, Ben. Um, Wow, that's, that's, that's actually a really good question. I, I think for me, Ben, I, I had 13 years of broadcasting in radio before I started doing the tennis. So I think through that period, I kind of knew what my voice was and who, who I was as a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, in, it, for me, the big challenge was adapting that to the timing of tennis um, and, and just the pace of tennis. Um, I think we, especially as American broadcasters, um, have a tendency to, we always were taught that dead air is bad. Uh, And by that, if for for non-broadcasters, that means if there's any silence, that's bad. Um, That's kind of how we always learned in journalism school to never have dead air. Um, And I don't, think that that's a bad thing now, but I think at the, at the start when the nine years ago, I thought that was a horrendous thing. But I think for me, I, I listened to a lot of the British broadcasters then yeah. um, to kind of understand their pacing and just flow of a tennis match. Um, I, I don't think with, with tennis specifically, I don't think you have to talk all the time. Um, our fans, especially at challengers, they know tennis. If they're watching a challenger tennis match, they have a pretty good understanding. I mean, you have to search to find it, right? So it's not like it's just on ESPN or was it TSN up, up there? Is that, is that yeah, right? TSN, TSN and Sportsnet? Yep. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like it's just there on, you have to search it out. So these are people who are educated and knowledgeable. You don't have to speak all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think now of my job as um, accompaniment, if I can add something, um, make sure people who are maybe kind of casually listening, make sure I keep checking in with them. Um, but my job is to provide a little bit of extra color, a little bit of just kind of bus driving, if you will, just kind of leading them through the match, through the tournament. But it's much more relaxed now, my my voice as a broadcaster in tennis, than it was nine years ago, without a doubt. Yeah, and, um, you know, there there are so many different sort of moments and elements of a, of a tennis match where... It, you're right. I, I think dead air. You almost let the let the match tell the story. Um, right. If you're watching watching the broadcast, are, are there kind of elements you're you're looking for when you're actively broadcasting a match? Like if you're courtside, are there are there little ticks you're you're watching players and, and picking up on things? Yeah, for me, it's it's about um, I I I try to in my head right before a match. I try to think of. You know, if I have two players and I think about what they do stylistically and I'll try to set up and say player A likes to do this. And if they're doing this, this is how they will succeed. Um, And then think about, you know, that that dynamic between two players, how they are going to try to take away each other's weapons, take away each other's strengths um, and, and go from there. And so then when I see some of those patterns dissolving or when I see a pattern really being accentuated or something that's a little bit different, that's where I'll want to interject and just say, that's, that's unusual. They are, or they are hitting exactly what they want to be doing. It's leading to success. Um, and I, I keep kind of a, a very basic chart about, you know, break point patterns, ACE patterns, serving patterns, um, just very, very basic because I'm trying to broadcast as well, Ben. But, you know, it's I, I, that's how I kind of look. What I look for is just I have a pretty basic idea of this is what the match would look like if this player is doing well. And this is what a match would look like if the other player is doing well. And then once things kind of flow in one direction, I kind of try to pick up on that and make sure that the the viewer is with me on the same page. Um, tennis.com actually published uh, a great piece about you. I found from a couple of years ago and, uh, just your work as a broadcaster in the sport. And you memorably said in that article, you said you never stop learning from, from the matches you watch. So how is it uh, after so many years of broadcasting, seeing so many tennis matches, and I know you've commentated multiple in a row, how is it that you, you're, you're still learning and picking up new details? Uh, I, I think for me, Ben, the one of the greatest privileges I have is I have the ability to actually talk to players in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the great joys of my job at the challenger level is, and Ben, I know you've been to plenty of the, the bigger tournaments, right? We're as media, we're segregated, right? We are, we are over here. Players are in a completely different compartment so that we kind of, don't cross paths at the challengers i'm in the same hotel Uh, i'm having breakfast with them there's no separate media eating area where you know i'm kind of slammed in with them so i get to listen and have conversations with players about what they're trying to do and how they try to develop their game same thing with coaches coaches as you probably know ben coaches will talk to you for hours uh, especially if you find them in a hotel bar at about 10 o'clock at night, you can, you can just <laughs> sit there and have drinks for, for hours if you really yeah. want to. Um, and, and that's the thing. I, I, just the ability to listen to players talk about and analyze how, how they try to develop their style, how they try to implement their style is, is fascinating to me. So I think it gives me I mean, it's, it's just kind of continuously building that knowledge base of different styles and how they work. Um, this past week, I was in Miami. I was serving as the um, ATP media or tennis TV reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the social team was putting together this really cool piece. I don't know when it's going to be out, but it was asking um, players a little bit more about certain stylistic things that they do. Um, and I got to talk to Daniil Medvedev about why he returns from so far back in the court. 
mm-hmm. which to me was like it was as a nerd, right? It was so cool listening to one of the best in the world yeah. to actually engage with me about why he does it, what he actually sees. And so that was a massive learning opportunity, right? To hear from Daniil Medvedev about what he's what he sees and how he interprets what his opponent does when he makes that first contact. And then how, you know, he's looking at his opponent, sees what they do, and then makes adjustments on the fly. I can't, I mean, how, how, you could never have that information unless you're actually having that direct contact with that person. So I, I know how incredibly lucky I am to have that opportunity. And I try to take advantage of it as much as I possibly can. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm glad you brought up Miami because I um, heard a few interviews uh, of yours there, which were great. I also think you worked Acapulco as well. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask because obviously, you know, a long form best two of three match where you, you might be commentating in the booth for two and a half, three hours. It's such a different format than handling a post-match interview with the top player where you only get a short, you know, two to three minute time frame. And, and sometimes that's sometimes that's following like a long classic match. What's what's I guess your approach to those those courtside interviews and and what kind of information I guess are you looking to extract from the winner in that in that short time frame? Ben, you're you're very good at what you do. Uh, that is another just fan, <laughs> like it's a fantastic question because I will tell you that has been a learning experience for me and one I've put a lot of thought of into over the last um, last couple of weeks doing these two tournaments. Um, we, we don't really know until literally right before the interview whether we're going to get two questions or three questions, mm-hmm. um, plus for um, a, a players who speak a, a language other than English, we also have to make sure one of our questions is also in their native language, whatever that may be. Um, so yeah, it has been very difficult for me, much like you, Ben, you probably have four, five, six different questions you could ask of of a player in a moment like that. But, you know, the ATP understandably and correctly very protective of their time, especially right after a match. Um, So what I ended up settling on was I, I didn't want to just do that very basic question of how'd you play um, talk about your next opponent, because that's, again, it's, it's easy to do. And sometimes if you're not able to watch a match, you just kind of have to. But if I'm able to watch a match, I want to make sure I ask as much as possible about what actually happened. Um, Because, again, you think about who the audience is um, on tennis TV, which is the the home broadcast for ATP media. Again, that's going to be a pretty learned audience, right? That's not going to be just a casual viewer. That's somebody who wants maybe a little bit more about tactics. Um, So you have to try to find a way specifically to sum up everything in two questions. And that's really challenging. So you try to make sure the first question is just kind of about the, the moment, um, you know, summarizing, especially if it's first time into a semifinal, first time into a final or first win over uh, that kind of an opponent, or you've made some sort of breakthrough or just kind of the big, big picture. Um, that's where you have to try to sum up as best you can. And so you make sure you have the best information for that about what that means to that particular person. Um, but if I've had the time and watched the match, again, I go back to that idea of, you know, if person A versus person B, what are they trying to do within a a match? Uh, Did they do that? Did they do something a little different? And so if I'm able to pick up on any type of a pattern, um, I'm going to try to ask about that. Because again, they too often as journalists, we don't ask about the actual play and the the tactical interaction. Um, There is a lot of focus in our sport about, I don't know, the theatrics or, you know, what it means to get to this round or the points or the rankings. And so I want to make sure when I'm doing that interview on court, and I only have two questions, I do want to ask big picture, but I also want to be a little bit more focused and see if I can pick up on a particular pattern and what they wanted to do. Um, I I got a lot of, um, I don't know, it was Chris Otto 
posted my question to Carlos Alcaraz after the Stefano Tsitsipas match because Carlos was so open about what he was trying to do. And I thought that was just a really cool interaction. And I think, you know, fans seem to really respond to it because Carlos was really just saying, yeah, this is what I was trying to do. I, you know, you'd stay away from that forehand. So I knew I was going to yeah. get that backhand line over and over again. And I think because we don't ask that question enough, I mean, it was so just like, Oh my God, I can't believe he said that. But it, <laughs> it was really cool to kind of see, hear that, hear that talk, that actual discussion of what they were trying to do and why. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, that's that's so cool. And I I, I recall that that moment and him sort of breaking down that match. And you think back, it's like, yeah, he was really forcing that cross court pattern into Tsitsipas's one hander and, and opening up the line. And um, that great job as a, as a journalist to, to extract those details. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, your podcast that, of course, you do with Noah Rubin behind the racket. I had him on uh, on our show a couple of years ago and the one aspect that I love about this podcast is it's so different. And there's you, the broadcaster who of course comes from working the challenger circuit where we see so many of these players, like really trying to make it right. Trying to make it as professionals. And then we have Noah Rubin who is that current example. Um, What's that experience like for you? um, Not only working alongside Noah, but hearing some of the stories of various players, um, trying to make it as professionals yeah uh, uh first with with noah um I, I am as much as i if, if anybody's listened to our podcast as much as i give him a hard time and, and we mock each other mercilessly and that that is truly our relationship i am i'm continuously inspired by how how much he cares about the sport and wanting the sport to be better that doesn't mean I always agree with him, but he is so passionate about trying to find new ways to make the sport um, more accessible to a broader audience, especially here in the States. I'm continuously inspired by him. Um, we haven't done a lot of podcasts lately because of the fact he is really trying hard right now to yeah. play again and be a little bit more effective as a player in, after essentially a, a, a year and a half off. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, as much as I, like I said, as much as I give him a hard time, I think he's, he really cares about the sport. Um, and he has been a very good friend to me over these last couple of years, as we both experienced our own, you know, hardships, um, through the pandemic, it was incredibly challenging for both of us, him as a player, me as a broadcaster, not having, um, the full, um, opportunity to do what we love to do. Um, as in terms of the stories, we, try to make sure our focus with our interviews specifically is it's really focused on players who are outside of the top 100 um, or maybe uh, players who are a little bit under serviced in terms of the media coverage. Um, you know, as, as I was thinking about this podcast, Gabby Dabrowski was on our mm-hmm. podcast a little over a year ago, the Canadian double specialist. And we had a, a great opportunity with her to talk about how doubles is not covered well yeah. um, at all. And Gabby's just, as you know, all too well, been just such a fantastic spokesperson for, for that side of our game. Um, and, and we do a lot of these interviews with players who are 150 in the world or 400 in the world. We talked to Philip Pelevo, who is unfortunately I listened no to that one. Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> I believe he's now uh, under the Polish flag, but um, it, it's, these stories are both inspiring in terms of these players who love so much what they do and want to get to that that peak level of what they are most I don't know what what the highest level they can get to is but it's also heartbreaking in especially over these last couple of years hearing these stories of players who are saying you know I just I need a few more opportunities I haven't financially been able to save any money I'm running into debt Mm -hmm. and so it's it's been this dichotomy of of just wanting to make sure there are enough opportunities for players to just do what they want i i i think what i've come to from it is this idea of i just want everybody to be able to tell and have their story play out as they want it um fulfill their destiny whatever it may be and when they're just limited opportunities that's when it gets so hard to listen to hard to hear right in internally so um, 
Yeah, I think it's it's been a really fun journey, and I hope we are able to continue to tell these these stories because truly they are incredible to find out just a little bit more about the players, what got them there, and what they really want to accomplish with their lives. Yeah, definitely, and and it's a pleasure to to listen to them when when we get the chance. Uh, I wanted to finish with something fun, uh, just some some rapid fire questions. I did this with Noah actually when we had him on okay. the podcast, uh, <laughs> just to wrap and and learn uh, just a little bit more about you. Uh, so, first question: Are you a morning or a night person? When I'm at home, I'm a morning person. When I'm on the road working, I have to be a night person. Yeah, okay. uh, with a lot of night sessions. Perfect. Um, coffee. I do or... love my coffee. Uh, that as you get into this question, I have to have my coffee. It is crucial. <laughs> I, ha- I don't even know what this question is. Espresso machine is yeah. about twenty feet behind me right now. Yes, it is. Okay. It is part of the morning routine. Perfect. So coffee is definitely the answer over coffee or tea. Um, yeah coolest place you have ever visited oh wow um actually it's one i'm one i'm going to in a couple of weeks for a challenger savannah georgia is my favorite beautiful city in the united states oh my gosh i could i i really hope i could retire there Mm -hmm. to be honest with you it is just beautiful the art in that community the food is fantastic um the scenery the history um but i you know what I, i should say my favorite challenger that I no longer go to is Vancouver. That challenger is phenomenal. I love the city so much. I haven't been there since 2015. Um, but I've gone, I went, I've gone there four or five times and I, I could go there and just be thrilled to have weeks and weeks there. That's great. Our West Coast is so beautiful. And actually, it the is. Billie Jean King Cup uh, tie is just coming up and will be played in Vancouver, which is uh, great for tennis fans. Um, a tournament you would most like to cover that you have not had the chance to yet? Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Yeah, it's, it, I, it's, it's just kind of the, the pinnacle, right? I mean, it is, I mean, with all, it, it's the history of it. I, I've been lucky enough to do two slams uh, in Australia and the U.S. Open. And they're both fantastic in their own right. Australia, just the the fan experience, the player experience is phenomenal. New York with that energy, um, but yeah, I I want I want to do Wimbledon once uh, just to have the experience in in those historic venues. Most memorable match you have ever called? I'm sure you have a lot. Yeah, it's. Um, hmm. I have, I have so many different answers for this, Ben. I think the one that, that most uh, fans uh, respond to is the Francis Tiafo uh, adult sounds interrupting the tennis match in Sarasota. In oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, that's the one that, that I think a lot of fans uh, will remember me by. There was also the Marcus Willis eating a, a Snickers bar and a, and a soda in the middle of his match. The, so those are the ones that obviously stick out in terms of just the how unique they were. Um, I could the the Lauren Davis Simona Halep match I broadcast at the Australian Open is up there. That was a nine nine seven in the third set. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think for me right now the answer I'd have to give you is I got to do my first Grand Slam final last year. Um, Layla and Emma Raducanu. Um, and that was, that was for me, just again, one of those, those steps of, you know, getting to do something. I'm sorry, my cat's interrupting me right now. <laughs> no problem. No Having problem. trouble focusing, but getting to just get to that next point in, in a broadcasting career and, um, just a personal accomplishment type of a thing was, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, after the match, I felt I did a good job and I cried about it because again, you just. You, you think about the journey of getting there. It was just such a, a huge moment for me. So that that one will always stand out, just how historic it was and, and just getting to be, you know, a very small part of it. Yeah, uh, amazing achievement. And, and what a run. We we loved that run, of course, in Canada, yeah, Layla, uh, going to the finals. <laughs> it's incredibly memorable U.S. Open. Uh, last question, I guess, um, coolest maybe conversation you've ever had with a tennis player. Um, 
And you, you are very good at this. This is, uh, I, you're making me think quite a bit here today. <laughs> uh, I, I, I listen, the, the conversations I had in, in Miami getting to talk to some of those players about technique um, were phenomenal. I, I had three conversations with Medvedev during that week where we really just talked about tactics. Um, and so I, I think I have to put that up there mm-hmm. as, as among the, the best, because again, to have that opportunity is just so unique and so rare, but I, I think the, the real answer for me, Ben, and, and why I love challengers more than anything else that I do is I can't, I can't tell you the conversations, but I can tell you I've had in-depth conversations with players that have zero to do with with tennis yeah um one that one that stands out to me without identifying the player had just gone through a really difficult breakup and i i watched him lose multiple matches in a row and at the end of one was in tears and he actually then came over to me knowing that i had just recently gone through a divorce Mm -hmm. Um, and again, this is more information than you probably wanted to get into, oh, Ben, but fine. you know, it was, it was one of these moments where both of us were out, you know, trying to kind of go through this personal, you know, loss, um, and, and was just asking for, you know, my advice of how I got through my own, um, grief and loss. And, and that's happened so many times over the years because we're, especially at the challenger level, we're just kind of out there alone a lot, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of the stories we tell a lot on, on our podcast. And I consider myself really lucky to be in, in some ways at times for players, kind of an older brother. Um, when, when they don't have anybody who's out there with them on the road, I'm somebody who's a, a little bit older and can just kind of ha- go have a beer and just we can just have a conversation that has zero to do with tennis. And those are the ones that I'm going to remember forever. Um, that one in particular, Noah has been so kind to let me in on some of the hotel room moments where he's with, I don't know, Christopher Eubanks or somebody else. And they're just mm-hmm. playing FIFA yeah. for hours at a time. And I can just kind of sit in there and again, no tennis is discussed. So those are the ones that whenever this ends for me, whenever my journey ends, I'm going to remember because it's those relationships are the ones that are much more important to me than what I actually saw on a court. So I I don't know if that's the best response I can give you. um, But yeah, that's that's what will always stick with me and sticks with me when I when I leave uh, one particular tournament is not the tennis, but much more so, you know, the interactions I had with with those people I'm lucky enough to know. No, that's that's a perfect uh, heartfelt response and a, a perfect way to wrap. I think. Um, can I Mike, ask you a question, Ben? Yeah, you can before ask before we question. go. Okay, <laughs> so you know we mentioned Peter Polanski. Um, is so is this with Denis Shapovalov? Is this like an official thing that's happening? Him kind of coaching guidance. Yeah, we uh, we haven't heard an announcement, but uh, it seems like he's very, very often in the box. Um, yes. So it very much feels like Peter is fully part of his team, but it, it's different than obviously his addition of Jamie Delgado, which was announced, and we all heard that right. that was that was an add to his coaching team. But uh, oh, good. I, I think you know the last basically every tournament this season we've seen Peter Polanski in in the box. So. It's fascinating. You think about Jamie Delgado and then Peter Polanski. I mean, they just come from so such different worlds. Yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> in, in tennis, that I'm I'm fascinated to see how that dynamic plays out. Yeah, yeah, it will be interesting. Of course, uh, for Dennis, it was a great start to the season. I think with the yes. ATP Cup and then Australian Open, then uh, then a few struggles. So we're hoping for for a nice bounce back on, on clay. Yeah. I think for all all of our Canadians. Uh, yeah. But uh, Mike, thank thank you so much uh, for for taking the time on our podcast, sharing some great broadcast stories. Um, I love to hear uh, this side of the sport, so we we really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you, and and again, thank you for asking such thoughtful questions. That that makes this a lot of fun for me. Appreciate it.
There you have it, my conversation with broadcaster Mike Cation, who also was a scene, and I spoke to him about this uh, at the Miami Open and Acapulco handling those post-match interviews with uh, all the ATP players fresh off a win, which is also a different perspective than calling matches. But I thought it was really cool that he forged some of these relationships with players on the challenger circuit who are kind of out there alone. You know, it's, it's small, small crowds. Sometimes they're not really traveling with many, many people. And we've heard these stories of really trying to make a living. It's very, very difficult when you're outside that top 100, top 150, and it's a major grind. And I think he's experienced that firsthand, just, just witnessing all these players. Yeah, I loved his insight. And you can definitely form relationships, uh, you know, while still maintaining that professional um, balance and whatnot. So you can cover things in an unbiased way, depending on, you know, what aspect or what level of, of journalism, tennis journalism you're, you're involved with. But yeah, I, I've found myself in covering challengers in the past and even smaller level ATP and WTA tournaments where you have more access. That's where you can build up that, that rapport with the player. And that's where you can then use those sort of back channels to your, you know, advantage to keep touch with them. And, and if they make it down the road, like case in point for you and me, even talking with Leila Annie Fernandez, talking with Bianca Andrescu, who I interviewed for the first time when she was like 14 or 15 on the way up. And then you see them later and they recognize you and you forge that positive relationship and they realize you're not out to get them, that you don't have a hidden agenda or an angle that maybe, you know, some other unknowns may have, unfortunately. So it provides that safety net, I think. And Mike definitely has benefited from that, uh, you know, on a smaller scale, because we haven't been covering nearly as long. Uh, you know, we've benefited from that as well. Um, and, you know, not that we root for players specifically over other players, but uh, it is nice when a player that you've seen come up and put in the time then has that success later. Um, and, and often is the case, unfortunately, that uh, players continue to grind it out at the challenger level and never have that big breakout moment. But you, uh, you do appreciate the, uh, the hard work and effort that they're putting in uh, at that level. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And and you see those breakthrough stories, as he alluded to with, of course, Jensen Brooksby, who not many months ago was scrapping outside probably the top 300. And now he's a, a regular ATP pro and a dangerous one in that. We we talked about Aslan Karatsev and, and so many other great players who they are forging their careers through the challenger circuit. Uh, we saw with Dennis and Felix back when they were young, young juniors as, as well. So uh, that that is part of becoming a pro. And I really don't think there's that big of a separation in the level of tennis so especially around Canada as we you know get the return of the Tevlin challenger later this year Calgary we get great events in Quebec and and Gatineau and Granby if you're a tennis lover like go and watch these matches like they're always great great players there and and great tennis communities the the admission is often free for some Mm -hmm. of those challenger level events I've never seen anyone collect any money at the Tevlin challenger for example here in Toronto uh, you get front row access to both the singles and the doubles. Uh, the players are milling about, hanging out. You can have conversations with them. Some players will approach fans, or I've been approached before with my camera, and they've said, hey, can you send me some of the pictures you've taken at my match? Because there isn't the same level of, obviously, photographers that are covering it. And so that's kind of neat as well. Um, I've seen things behind the scenes, like uh, Bianca Andrescu uh, absolutely bawling after a quarterfinal or semifinal loss years ago. I want to say 2017 or 2018 with uh, one of her coaches, Cyril Solnier, former ATB player uh, who was helping coach her at the time. And she was just beside herself that she didn't win. And she was making a comparison saying like, CC Bellis won this a year or two ago. Mm. And how come I can't have that same? Like, I feel like I'm ready for it. And, you know, it wasn't too much longer after that, that she had her big breakthrough at Indian Wells. So um, you do get that up close sort of uh, access, which is uh, something that you don't always get clearly at the bigger events certainly not if you're sitting on on stadium court um and and mike's seen it all i i dug his his question or his point rather about uh, peter polanski being the the most talented player to have never made the top 100 mm-hmm. that he's seen in his time and uh you know sometimes for us it's hard to sort of take off our canadian glasses as we in canadian lenses we look at these players but to hear mike mention that pete was just that talented and it just for one reason or another hasn't translated into that top 100 success for him yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was close. He was he was certainly close. And now we see him and, and discuss this regularly in Denis Shapovalov's coaching box. So I don't know if that's something official, but we'll uh, we'll always keep an eye on that. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. Hey, one more thing before yeah. we move past your interview is uh 
boy, your questions made you sound really intelligent, I have to say. <laughs> and, and Mike picked up on that and complimented you, gosh, at least like three times, I feel like, about your like really good questions. And and they were like you were you were on your game for this one, buddy. So it was nice to hear the, uh, you know, um, uh, the rewards from that, from your interviewee who clearly appreciated uh, what you're asking him. Well, I appreciate the kind words. And yeah, he was being overly flattering about my uh, journalistic questions. So I greatly appreciated that uh, as well. We'll continue the tennis talk. And we are now in the midst of the clay court season, as you know. And this is really the big first event that we have on clay Masters 1000 in Monte Carlo. Also the return of Novak Djokovic for just his second event of 2022. He's the number one seed here. We don't have Rafael Nadal still recovering from that injury. Number two seed, Sasha Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, defending champion, and Felix Auger-Aliassime in the field. I guess to start, what type of expectations are we placing on Novak Djokovic in, in his return and the beginning of play? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't consider him the favorite given the time off, but I think the fact that the tour is transitioning from one surface to another gives him a little bit of a better starting ground. Um, it's not like he's going to the hard courts where everyone else is like super warmed up. Here he is. He's only played what one or two events recently. So just one, I yeah. yeah, just one. So I think going to clay is probably as good for him as, as anyone else. Uh, that being said, doesn't have as much match play under his belt. Not sure, you know, mentally speaking is the fortitude there. Is he in, you know, mental game shape as well, so to speak, but you know, the other thing is he's the reigning Roland Garros champion. And, you know, kind of for me, like in boxing, how if you hold the title belt, like you're still the defending champ. And so for me, he holds the greatest clay title, you know, under his belt from last year. And it's up to others to take it from him. So uh, to me, he's still maybe, yeah, not the favorite, but uh, you put him right up near the top because of what he's done year after year after year on clay with deep runs and, and last year winning Roland Garros. Uh, that being said, I don't have him going to the final in my draw. I don't have him in my Tennis Canada bracket challenge, making it past um, Alcaraz. And I don't know how yours played out, but something tells me that maybe we're sort of on a, a similar track here. Yeah, and and look, this is the high-profile match that everybody is, I think, greatly hoping to see Alcaraz versus Djokovic. It was something that was already being discussed when we saw Alcaraz uh, in the midst of his run in Miami. Like, oh, we want to see Carlos play Djokovic. That would be the most spectacular match. Both of them will have some work to do to make it happen. Uh, it's a potential quarterfinal in the top half of the draw. It's interesting, Djokovic, as you mentioned, um, holding that Roland Garros title from last year, he took a little bit of time to really peak on clay in 2021. Uh, if we remember last season, a very surprising opening round upset to Dan Evans at Monte Carlo, which was kind of a shocker. And at the time, maybe we didn't think too much of it, just kind of a stinker of a match. He, he turned it around and of course was the French open champion, but I, I think he has a couple tough ones early. Alejandro Davidovich Fakina is his potential first match. He's a very good clay court player. You have actually Evans in that bracket as well. Roberta Bautista. Is, is RBA? Agut. Yeah. RBA is in the mix, who's given him trouble in the past. So I do want to see that quarterfinal. Djokovic has a bit of a difficult draw, though. And uh, then other names, I guess I'm sort of looking towards to make a run. Kasparud coming off the finals in Miami now gets to his favorite surface. And Tsitsipas has sort of struggled this season post-Australian Open. Uh, he won this title last year, so I'm curious to see what he's capable of what, uh, as well. Yeah, I had to go back and do a refresher. And uh, I, I'm always amazed with some people, tennis fans and, and in the media, the people who have like such a sharp memory that they remember all, <laughs> all the these results, matches right? yeah. from years past. And here I am <laughs> like, oh, crap, I don't even remember what happened last year on clay aside from a couple of big results. So I had to right. go back and look. And yeah, the names that were popping up all over the place again and again were CC Pass and uh, and Rude as well. And we talked about Rude last week for his hardcourt prowess and how far he's come along in that regard and how he used to be considered such a clay court guy. Well, here we are on clay, so perfect for him. CC Pass maybe can get things sort of on a roll more consistently returning to clay. And then, of course, we got to talk about the Canadians, uh, Denis Shapovalov, who's not entered in this event, but we hope to see him back in the big ones soon. Felix Ogialiassime, who definitely is in a struggle with his form recently on hard court in the Sunshine Double. So what do we see from him? But uh, I am intrigued to see if we see, a, you know, we witness a bounce back from the Canadians as we transition to the clay or if their recent struggles uh, continue. 
Yeah, look, um, I think it's sort of gut check time here for Felix. This is a, a tough, tough stretch after the incredible two months that we spent a lot of time highlighting, and rightfully so. We, we saw what he accomplished in January and February, Australian Open quarterfinals, ATP Cup title, then that first ATP singles title in Rotterdam. He made another final in Marseille, I believe, before losing to Rublev, and then 0-2 in the Sunshine Double, and he played the small event in Marrakech, and I think we spoke about him probably just wanting match play after the frustration of Indian Wells in Miami. He did win one match against Elliot Ben Shetrit, who is not really a household name before losing to Alex Molkin in the round of 16. So the tough times continue for Felix. And I look at his draw. He could be in tough right away. These Masters 1000s are really tough. You're talking about maybe Musetti, great clay court player, or Benoit Pair, a dangerous clay court player as well in the first uh, first match for his. So I, I'm keen if he can rebound, but we haven't really seen great clay results from Felix in some time, surprisingly. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. And even then it was, uh, you know, 250 level tournaments, if memory serves correctly. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, we want it all for our Canadian players, don't we? We want it all and we want it now. We want it right now. We don't want to wait. We want to see what happened in January, continue in February and March and April and beyond. And we just want them to, you know, do it all the time, which is uh, there are very few players on the men's or women's tour that are doing it all the time. And we have to remind ourselves that Felix does have a top 10 presence. And that's for good reason that over the course of the last year, he has proved that he does belong in that realm, but it's also, you know, there's a lot of players in the top 20 and 30 that, uh, that could also be up into that realm. um, You know, if they go on a bit of a, a streak, so it's not like the top 10 are so isolated from everybody else and so much above everyone else. Um, and, and we do know that Felix has proven over the course of the last couple of years, Dennis as well, they're going to have their moments. They are going to have those, those triumphs. And we just want to see them a little bit more consistently as of course the players do themselves. Um, on the women's side though, we do have some good news and some returning Canadian players who are making their way back to action. And it's been a long time coming for both of these in Jeannie Bouchard and Bianca Andreescu. Uh, ben, I'll let you get started here. What do you know about Jeannie and when her fans, the Jeannie Army, can expect her back on court? Yeah, she is confirmed to play. It's called the Women's Pro Clay Court Championship from Palm Harbor, Florida, which is starting up Monday. It's a $100,000 IT, $100, ITF event and probably a great place for her to start. We we talked about that exhibition match she played a few weeks ago, I believe, against Sophia Kennan, right? If, and that was a very comfortable win. So uh, something inspiring there in terms of her form and obviously how well her rehabilitation has gone for that shoulder injury. But pretty incredible that we haven't seen her play an official um, pro match since February of 2021. And back then, she had been playing really, really well. Tail end of 2020, she made a final, made a quarterfinal. And then in Mexico, I believe, lost that one final uh, to Sarah Cerebes Tormo. So we saw a lot of positive returns on her tennis when she was playing. The injury setback, it's been a bit over a year now. And uh, Jeannie is ready to go. Yeah, it was really great to see how she was doing before all that because she was inching pretty close to the top 100. It seems like she was, mm-hmm. she seemed like she was well on her way. Uh, Renee Stubbs, who we've talked to before, was working with her, and that was a big help as well at that time. Uh, but what a long um, you know duration to be on the sidelines, unfortunately, and and good for her to work her way back because let's be honest, she's uh, what 27, 28 years old now. Jeannie Bouchard didn't have to come back to tennis for uh, you know any monetary gains. I mean, she certainly got more than enough through all of her uh, extra sponsorship deals and advertisements and whatnot. If she's back, it's because obviously there's a hunger where she wants to compete and she still feels she can get back into the top 100. And I feel that that's within the the realm of possibility also for her. Uh, Great to see her beat uh, Sophia Kennan, uh, a player who has been uh, playing matches of late, albeit not having much success. Um, so I don't know how to really take that one, especially in an exhibition. Mm-hmm. She also played mixed doubles with Tommy Haas and beat Kennan, who was partnered with um, uh, one of the serve bots, I want to say. Uh, Sam Query, there you uh, go. who I think counts <laughs> as a serve bot. Yep. Uh, and I say that playfully, of course, not, uh, <laughs> you know, not with a negative tone to it. Um, but uh, yeah, great to see that she's back. Her legion of fans will be so happy to see her there as well. And a good place to start. I don't know about like protected ranking or what kind of events she could really be getting in right now, but that's probably a good starting point uh, at an event of that level. Yeah, I think so. And, and surely she would get some wildcard opportunities. 
I, I would say for her fans, don't worry too much about the ranking right now. Maybe don't even look at it because it's outside the top 1,200 at the moment. And, and this is what happens when you step away from the sport for so long, uh, dealing with a shoulder injury uh, of the magnitude that she had. But the rehab is complete, and this is a good starting point. Another player returning, super high profile as well. We have her on two entry lists for the WTA is Bianca Andrescu. We've seen shots of her training at the Rafa Nadal Academy and training on clay. And it, it looks like she's set to return in Stuttgart next week on clay. And that she's also on the entry list for the uh, big tournament, uh, the Mutual Madrid Open. So Bianca is, I think, rearing to go, which is great. Yeah, the Rafa Nadal Academy, a good place to practice and train for clay, no? I mean, that's uh, I so. the, best, the best spot to be. So, And, and all of her Instagram pictures have been a lot of smiles amidst all the hard work, too. So it kind of gives the vibe that she's really happy to be back, which is nice to see, first and foremost. Uh, you know, that uh, from a mental standpoint, mental health standpoint, that she is obviously uh, looking comfortable on the court again and wanting to be there and took the time that she needed. I mean, initially it was the Australian swing. She said she wasn't going to play to heal up physically and, and mentally and spiritually, it seemed as well. And, and she took her time and didn't rush back for the Sunshine Double, a place like Indian Wells. Um, so this is great. And we haven't seen a lot from her on clay in the last few years because of injuries and the timing of those injuries. So I'm pretty excited to see her back there and, um, and, and Canadian tennis fans, of course, this is one of our brightest lights. Let's not forget, even though it's been a while, she's, she's been on court. This is one of our big stars and uh, just great to see her back in the mix and, and another big name to add to the Canadian tennis landscape. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you look at last season, really the past two years, it's almost like she's completely missed a proper clay court season. So I think it's it's crucial for her to actually get started even before Mad- uh, Madrid playing this uh, indoor clay court event in Stuttgart, uh, which is a bit of a smaller tournament. But if you remember, she caught COVID actually last year as she was just about to start her clay court season and then kind of put in that awkward position. You're you don't really get a proper tune-up. I think she only got one tournament before the French Open, then is in the French Open, falls to uh, Tamara Zidonsek, who made that uh, surprise semifinal run. So to get some tournaments under your belt, just getting match play again, I, I think is huge. Again, I don't think we have to worry about the ranking. You know, Naomi Osaka's ranking plummeted, and we saw what she's she's managed to do the past couple of weeks. So I, I think she looks happy. She looks maybe stress-free and relaxed, which is which is huge for Bianca because I think her quality of tennis is as good as anyone's now another return that uh, we want to talk about briefly here uh, before we wrap up this week's episode is uh, the instagram post that serena williams put up Mm -hmm. just a few days ago where she has basically alluded to the fact that uh, she is gearing up for a return at wimbledon and on our last episode you and me were kind of you know summing up the award shows and the academy awards and what a great run from King Richard and how Serena and Venus were at all of the shows kind of leading up to that and wondering what did it mean? When are we going to see her back on a practice court? Then of course the news came just the other day that Patrick Muradoglu, uh, her longstanding coach over the last decade is going to be teaming up with Simona Halep. And that was huge news to see those two power names, both the coach and the player uh, joining forces, but then wondering, well, what does that mean for Serena? And I don't know about you, but I saw Patrick's post about uh, the, the change he basically said he's itching to, to be coaching tennis again at a high level. And I got the vibe, you know, not that he didn't want to wait for Serena, but in the interim anyways, wants to put his talents to good use. But it also sounded to me like if Serena comes back at some point, it didn't sound to me like he was closing that door either. Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's accurate. I mean, he acknowledged the fact that in the new partnership with Simona Halep, he said he had a conversation with Serena Williams and they agreed to sort of take a step back from their work and allow him to obviously, and, and you know, this is a very high profile player. It's not like he's uh, taking over the reins for some young promising junior, Simona Halep, two-time slam champion. The clay season is underway. I'm sure Halep has strong aspirations to think she can still win major, major titles. Um, Muradoglu has been one of the most active coaches if you follow his social media, particularly on Instagram. His coaching videos from his academy are fantastic. I view them all the time. So many great tidbits uh, for those who are a fan of the sport and, and looking for tips on all kinds of shots. But it's clear he has such a passion for that role and that I, I think he's wanted to take a great player under his wing for some time. And so uh, it, it makes sense that he could form this partnership with Halep. It's funny that we were just alluding to Sir 
Serena Williams last week, as you said, and you were almost contemplating is retirement happening. I want to think that like Serena checked out her podcast for five <laughs> minutes, heard you for a second and, and said, Oh, okay. I got, I got to clear the air here. I yeah, do yeah, plan yeah, on yeah. coming back for Wimbledon. That's, that's that my be, plan. Yeah. That must be it. I mean, Blair Henley sent me a message yesterday saying, Hey, Mike, Serena must've heard you guys, you know, because <laughs> uh, yeah, as if, but uh, hey, look, I was so happy to hear the news. Like mm-hmm. I'm not ready for players like her and Roger Federer to call it a career yet. I am hanging on to that because, uh, you know, we've grown up with them. Yep. Pre-media days, we uh, appreciated their game from our tennis fan perspective. We've gotten to talk to both of them and uh, to see, hey, if we could see both of them come back at Wimbledon, oh my God, wouldn't that be absolutely just huge for the sport to see that perhaps for one last time, realistically, you know, maybe for one last time. So I'm up for it. I'd also love to see both of them back in the summertime here in Canada for Canadian tennis fans to watch them and selfishly to ask them, you know, a couple more questions on mm-hmm. home soil, which has been, you know, the coolest thing that one day I'm going to tell my my grandkids that, yeah, I got to talk to Serena Williams and, and Roger Federer and among all the other great tennis players of this era who will go down as, as the greats of, of all time, no doubt. So, yeah, good news. And, uh, you know, one last note on Patrick Muradigu. I mean, that guy is one of the best promoters in all of tennis and one of the best self-promoters mm-hmm. in, in all of tennis. Like He knows how to do it and good on him for working his brand and putting it out there. He's not going to attach himself to some, you know, 40 to 50 ranked player in the world. He's going to want a top player and he's got one in Simona Halep and I think she's got a lot left to prove. And I I feel like he started with Serena around that same time when she was around the same age that Simona Halep is now uh, in her early thirties. If not, I think she just turned 30 in the past year. So I think if there's anyone that Simona's going to turn to who's been through this before uh, it's Patrick Muradoglu. And I think this dynamic could be uh, really, really lethal moving forward. Yeah, a very good point. Like Patrick basically joined Serena on what I would call the second stage of her career, the latter half of her career. And that's exactly the partnership that's happening with Simona Halep. I think he he wants to be under the wings of a veteran player who has a great understanding of the tour and knows their strengths and weaknesses. And, and Halep is that type of player. Should we touch on the brief uh, <laughs> brief controversy involving a quote from Patrick Moradoglu, uh, where he called Novak Djokovic the greatest player in the world, even on clay? This kind of stirred up the talk on social media. Yeah, of course. I mean, any comment like that and you're going to no matter what you say about the big three, you're going to ruffle somebody's feathers, right? It's almost impossible to word something without someone feeling slighted or attacked, you know, especially kind of like the, the hardcore fan base. Right. So, uh, look, I, I look, Rafa Nadal is the greatest clay tennis player of all time and, and we'll never see in our lifetime someone come and, and destroy his records. I think that's a safe one that we can bank on. But at the moment, you could also say currently, to me, whoever holds the French Open has bragging rights or has some extra level of allure on the surface. And so I can see what he was saying from that vantage point. Until you take it back, even someone like Rafa, you got to say, hey, Novak is the, the hot hand at the most recent ma- uh, you know, major on, on clay. So um, I could see how that divided people. You don't have to look into everything so, you know, so closely under the magnifying (laughs) glass. You know what I mean? We can just let that sort of be there as a compliment to Novak. And that's how I take it. Yeah, some some were alluding to the fact that Moradoglu is desperate to join Novak Djokovic's coaching team. Uh, But then we get news the same day that he's joining with Simona Halep. So I guess we can brush aside that news because Marion Vida, uh, from my understanding, is not actively part of Djokovic's team anymore. So we're wondering, does another person step in for that role? But uh, yeah, that quote certainly ruffled feathers. You look at the head to head, you look at the titles. Obviously, there's a massive separation. As you said, Nadal um, statistics will easily tell you he's the greatest clay court player of all time. Morata glue. I, I suppose if we're we're looking at that one match from 2021, Djokovic has the very small edge at the moment. I'm sure Nadal is keen to take it back and uh, answer the critics. Before we wrap, have to talk about Canada's upcoming tie at Billie Jean King Cup against Latvia, where it will be played at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, April 15th and 16th. And what a treat for our Western Canadian tennis fans. And that's a huge venue. Is that not the arena where the Vancouver Canucks play? No, it's not Rogers Arena, Pacific Coliseum. Yeah, this one seats. um, Ooh, actually, it is. It is a big venue, though. Um, 
Because the last, I'll let you just confirm that, but the last time that I was out West for a Davis Cup tie, it was played on the University of British Columbia campus at a relatively smaller kind of uh, venue. And I, is that what this is called? I'm not sure, but um, okay. So it's not the big stadium, but nonetheless, the Canucks used to play here. The Canucks well, used go. to play here. So it's so still, it is a still big a, venue. It is still a very big venue. You're right. Yeah. And I hope they have a great crowd. And regardless of the size, you know they're going to be rocking because tennis fans there are loud. They're proud of their Canadian uh, roots. And uh, every time I've been out there, it's been rabid tennis fans. These aren't casual, you know, business types in the corporate box sipping on mm-hmm. their champagne. Like these are fans who are into it. And that's the exact kind of atmosphere you need in international competition for this Billie Jean King Cup tie. And we're going to have some great um, coverage for you coming up this week with some sort of mini episodes we're going to drop, including one you did with team captain Heidi Eltebeck and one I had with uh, Canadian player Francoise Abanda. So it will be great to share those with you in the coming days leading up to the tie. And then, of course, wrapping it up on next week's episode as well. But this Canadian team... Looks really deep and is led uh, by Leila Annie Fernandez and great to have her there for the Canadians. Yeah, massive that she's part of this roster along with Rebecca Marino, Francois Abanda, as you said, Carol Zhao, and we have Gabby Dabrowski for doubles as well. Just as we're wrapping up the episode, we do have a winner to announce for the Hopeless Talent giveaway. This is from Rob Steckley just a couple episodes ago. Our code word was hopeless. Congratulations to Shauna, who I believe submitted through Instagram at I'm Shauna AM. We will send out uh, those details. Congratulations on your victory. And we will ship out that gear to you uh, as soon as we can. And thanks to Rob Steckley for uh, providing mm-hmm. this pretty sweet looking track suit. This is like a high end track suit. So if you go it's look nice. up the, pri- the price tag, Sean, you're going to be happy that this one's coming to you free of charge. And uh, thanks to Rob for doing that and happy to promote his uh, you know, side uh, venture, one of his many side ventures. Uh, Rob's such a great guy. We were happy to have him on a couple of weeks ago. And uh, hey, look, I'm stoked for the transition to Clay. I've got my bracket challenge all locked in. I'm ready to embarrass myself further with my picks. <laughs> I will stand by my picks and I stand by this podcast. And I think uh, this was a good one this week, man. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>